Section 17 of The Complete Works of Tacitus, edited by Thomas Gordon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Complete Works of Tacitus, to which are prefixed political discourses upon that author. Edited and translated by Thomas Gordon, with introductory essays by Thomas Gordon. Volume One, The Annals, Book One, Part Four, The German Insurrection. Almost at the same time, and from the same causes, the legions in Germany raised an insurrection, with greater numbers, and thence with more fury. Passionate, too, were their hopes that Germanicus would never brook the rule of another, but yield to the spirit of the legions, who had force sufficient to bring the whole empire under his sway. Upon the Rhine were two armies, that called the Higher, commanded by Gaius Silius, lieutenant-general, the Lower, by Aulus Caecina. The command-in-chief rested in Germanicus, then busy collecting the tribute in Gaul. The forces, however, under Silius, with cautious ambiguity, watched the success of the revolt which others began for the soldiers of the lower army had broken out into open outrages, which began from the fifth legion, and the one-and-twentieth, who drew after them the first and the twentieth. These were altogether upon the frontiers of the Eubians, passing the campaign in utter idleness, or light duty, so that upon the news that Augustus was dead, the whole swarm of new soldiers lately levied in the city, men accustomed to the effeminacies of Rome, and impatient of every military hardship, began to possess the ignorant minds of the rest with many turbulent expectations. That now was presented the lucky juncture for veterans to demand entire dismission. The fresh soldiers, larger pay, and all some mitigation of their miseries, as also to return due vengeance for the cruelties of the centurions. These were not the harangues of a single incendiary, like Percenius among the Pannonian legions, nor uttered as there in the ears of men who, while they saw before their eyes armies greater than their own, mutinied with awe and trembling. But here was a sedition of many mouths, filled with many boasts, that in their hands lay the power and fate of Rome. By their victories the empire was enlarged, and from then the Caesars took, as a compliment, the surname of Germanicus. Neither did Caecina strive to restrain them. A madness so extensive had bereft him of all his bravery and firmness. In this precipitate frenzy they rushed at once with swords drawn upon the centurions, the eternal objects of their resentment, and always the first victims to their vengeance. Them they dragged to the earth, and upon each bestowed a terrible portion of sixty blows, a number proportioned to that of centurions in a legion. Then, bruised, mangled, and half-expiring as they were, they cast them all out of the camp, some into the stream of the Rhine. Septimus, who had for refuge fled to the tribunal of Caecina, and lay clasping his feet, was demanded with such imperious vehemence that he was forced to be surrendered to destruction. Cassius Caria, 
afterwards famous to posterity for killing Caligula, then a young man of undaunted spirit, and one of the centurions, boldly opened himself a passage with his sword through a crowd of armed foes striving to seize him. After this no further authority remained to the tribunes, none to the camp-marshals. The seditious soldiers were their own officers, set the watch, appointed the guard, and gave all orders proper in the present exigency. Hence those who dived deepest into the spirit of the soldiery gathered a special indication how powerful and obdurate the present insurrection was like to prove, for in their conduct were no marks of a rabble, where every man's will guides him, or the instigation of a few controls the whole. Here all at once they raged, and all at once kept silent, with so much concert and steadiness, that you would have believed them under the sovereign direction of one. To Germanicus the while, then receiving, as I have said, the tribute in Gaul, news were brought of the decease of Augustus, whose granddaughter Agrippina he had to wife, and by her many children. He was himself the grandson of Livia, by her son Drusus, the brother of Tiberius, but ever under heavy anxiety from the secret hate which his uncle and grandmother bore him, hate the more virulent, as its grounds were altogether unrighteous. For dear and adored was the memory of his father Drusus amongst the Roman people, and from him was firmly expected that, had he succeeded to the empire, he would have restored public liberty. Hence their zeal for Germanicus, and of him the same hopes conceived, as from his youth he possessed a popular spirit, and marvellous affability, utterly remote from the comportment and address of Tiberius, ever haughty and mysterious. The animosities, too, between the ladies administered fresh fuel, while towards Agrippina Livia was actuated by the despite natural to stepmothers, and over-tempestuous was the indignation of Agrippina, only that her known chastity and love for her husband always gave her mind, however vehement, a virtuous turn. But Germanicus, the nearer he stood to supreme rule, the more vigour he exerted to secure it to Tiberius, to whom he obliged the Sequanians, a neighbouring people, as also the several Belgic cities, to swear present allegiance, and the moment he learnt the uproar of the legions, posted thither. He found them advanced without the camp to receive him, with eyes cast down in feigned token of remorse. After he entered the entrenchments, instantly his ears were filled with plaints and grievances, uttered in hideous and mixed clamours. Nay, some catching his hand, as if they meant to kiss it, thrust his fingers into their mouths to feel their gums destitute of teeth. Others showed their limbs enfeebled, and bodies stooping under old age. As he saw the assembly mixed at random, he commanded them to range themselves into companies, thence more distinctly to hear his answers, as also to place before them their several ensigns, that the cohorts might at least be distinguished. With slowness and reluctance they obeyed him. Then, beginning with an enconium upon the venerable memory of Augustus, he proceeded to the many victories and many triumphs of Tiberius, and with peculiar praises celebrated the glorious and immortal deeds which with these very legions he had accomplished in Germany. He next boasted the quiet state of things, the consent of all Italy, the loyal faith of both the Gauls, and every quarter of the Roman state exempt from disaffection and disorders. Thus far they listened with silence, 
at least with moderate murmuring. But the moment he touched their sedition, and questioned where now was the wonted modesty of soldiers, where the glory of ancient discipline, whither had they chased their tribunes, and whither their centurions, to a man they stripped themselves to the skin, and there exposed the seams of their wounds, and bruises of their chastisements, in the rage of reproach. Then, in the undistinguished voice of uproar, they urged the exactions for occasional exemptions, their scanty pay, and their rigorous labours, which they represented in long detail, ramparts to be reared, entrenchments digged, trees felled and drawn, forage cut and carried, fuel prepared and fetched, with every other article of toil required by the exigencies of war or to prevent idleness in the soldiery. Above all, from the veterans arose a cry most vehement and furious. They enumerated thirty years or upwards undergone in the service, and besought that, to men utterly spent, he would administer respite, nor suffer them to be beholden to death for the last relief from their toils, but discharge them from a warfare so lasting and severe, and grant them the means of a comfortable recess. Nay, some there were who required of him the money bequeathed them by Augustus, and towards Germanicus, uttering zealous vows with omens of happy fortune, declared their cordial attachment to his cause if he would himself assume the empire. Here, as if already stained with their treason, he leapt headlong from the tribunal, but with swords drawn they opposed his departure, and threatened his life if he refused to return, yet with passionate protestations that he would rather die than be a traitor, he snatched his sword from his side, and, aiming full at his breast, would have buried it there, had not those who were next to him seized his hand, and by force restrained him. A cluster of soldiers in the extremity of the assembly assorted him, nay, what is incredible to hear, some particulars advancing nearer exhorted him, to strike home. In truth, one Callusidius, a common soldier, presented him his naked sword, and added, It is sharper than your own, a behaviour which to the rest outrageous as they were seemed savage and of horrid example. Hence the friends of Germanicus had time to snatch him away to his tent. It was here consulted what remedy to apply, for it was advised that ministers of sedition were preparing to be dispatched to the other army to draw them too into a confederacy in the revolt, that the capital of the Eubians was destined to be sacked, and if their hands were once inured to plunder they would break in and ravage all Gaul. This dread was augmented by another. The enemy knew of the sedition in the Roman army, and were ready to invade the empire if its barrier, the Rhine, were left unguarded. Now, to arm the allies and the auxiliaries of Rome, and lead them against the departing legions, was to rouse a civil war. Severity was dangerous, the way of largesses infamous, and alike threatening it was to the state, to grant the turbulent soldiers nothing, or yield them everything. After revolving every reason and objection, the result was, to feign letters and directions from Tiberius, that those who had served twenty years should be finally discharged, such as had served sixteen be under the ensign and privilege of veterans, released from every duty but that of repulsing the enemy, and the legacy which they demanded should be paid and doubled. The soldiers, who perceived that, purely to evade present difficulty the concessions were forged, insisted to have them forthwith executed, and instantly the tribunes dispatched the discharge of the veterans. 
that of the money was adjourned to their several winter quarters, but the fifth legion and the one and twentieth refused to stir till in that very camp they were paid, so that out of the money reserved by himself and his friends for travelling expenses, Germanicus was obliged to raise the sum. Caecina, lieutenant-general, led the first legion and twentieth back to the capital of the Ubians. An infamous march, when the plunder of their general's coffers was carried amongst the ensigns and Roman eagles. Germanicus, the while, proceeding to the army in higher Germany, brought the second, thirteenth, and sixteenth legions to swear allegiance without hesitation. To the fourteenth, who manifested some short suspense, he made, unasked, a tender of their money, and a present discharge. But a party of veterans which belonged to the disorderly legions, and then in garrison among the Chaukians, as they began a sedition there, were somewhat quelled by the instant execution of two of their body, an execution commanded by many as camp-marshal, and rather of good example than done by competent authority. The tumult, however, swelling again with fresh rage, he fled, but was discovered, so that, finding no safety in lurking, from his own bravery he drew his defence, and declared that to himself, who was only their camp-marshal, these their outrages were not done, but to the authority of Germanicus their general, to the majesty of Tiberius their emperor. At the same time, braving and dismaying all that would have stopped him, he fiercely snatched the colours, faced about towards the Rhine, and, pronouncing the doom of traitors and deserters to every man who forsook his ranks, brought them back to their winter quarters, mutinous in truth, but not daring to mutiny. In the meantime the deputies from the Senate met Germanicus at the altar of the Eubians, whither in his return he was arrived. Two legions wintered there, the first and twentieth, with the soldiers lately placed under the standard of veterans, men already under the distractions of guilt and fear, and now a new terror possessed them, that these senators were come armed with injunctions to cancel every concession which they had by sedition extorted, and, as it is the custom of the crowd to be ever charging somebody with the crimes suggested by their own false alarms, the guilt of this imaginary decree they laid upon Minutius Plancus, a senator of consular dignity, and at the head of this deputation. In the dead of night they began to clamour aloud for the purple standard placed in the quarters of Germanicus, and, rushing tumultuously to his gate, burst the doors, dragged the prince out of his bed, and, with menaces of present death, compelled him to deliver the standard. Then, as they roved about the camp, they met the deputies, who, having learnt the outrage, were hastening to Germanicus. Upon them they poured a deluge of contumelies, and were devoting them to present slaughter, Plancus chiefly, whom the dignity of his character had restrained from flight, nor in this mortal danger had he other refuge than the quarters of the First Legion, where, embracing the eagle and other ensigns, he sought sanctuary from the religious veneration ever paid them. But, in spite of religion, had not Calpurnius the eagle-bearer by force defeated the violent assault, in the Roman camp had been slain an ambassador of the Roman people, and with his blood the inviolable altars of the gods had been stained, a barbarity rare even in the camp of an enemy. At last, day returning, when the general and the soldiers and their actions could be distinguished, Germanicus entered the camp, and, commanding Plancus to be brought, seated him by himself upon the tribunal. He then inveighed against the late pernicious frenzy, 
which in it, he said, had fatality, and was rekindled by no despite in the soldiers, but by that of the angry gods. He explained the genuine purposes of that embassy, and lamented with affecting eloquence the outrage committed upon Plancus, altogether brutal and unprovoked, the foul violence done to the sacred person of an ambassador, and the mighty disgrace from thence derived upon the legion. Yet, as the assembly showed more stupefaction than calmness, he dismissed the deputies under a guard of auxiliary horse. During this affright Germanicus was by all men censured that he retired not to the higher army, whence he had been sure of ready obedience, and even of succour against the revolters. Already he had taken the wrong measures more than enough, by discharging some, rewarding all, and other tender counsels. If he despised his own safety, yet why expose his infant son, why his wife big with child, to the fury of outrageous traitors, wantonly violating all the most sacred rights amongst men? It became him, at least, to restore his wife and son safe to Tiberius and to the state. He was long unresolved. Besides, Agrippina was averse to leave him, and urged that she was the granddaughter of Augustus, and it was below her spirit to shrink in a time of danger. But, embracing her and their little son with great tenderness and many tears, he prevailed with her to depart. Thus there marched miserably along a band of helpless women. The wife of a great commander fled like a fugitive, and upon her bosom bore her infant son. About her a troop of other ladies, dragged from their husbands and drowned in tears, uttering their heavy lamentations. Nor weaker than theirs was the grief felt by all who remained. These groans and tears, and this spectacle of woe, the appearances rather of a city stormed and sacked than of a Roman camp, that of Germanicus Caesar, victorious and flourishing, awakened attention and inquiry in the soldiers. Leaving their tent, they cried, Whence these doleful wailings? What so lamentable? So many ladies of illustrious quality, travelling thus forlorn, not a centurion to attend them, not a soldier to guard them their general's wife amongst them, undistinguished by any mark of her princely dignity, destitute of her ordinary train, frightened from the Roman legions, and repairing like an exile for shelter to Treve, there to commit herself to the faith of foreigners. Hence shame and commiseration seized them, and the remembrance of her illustrious family with that of her own virtues the brave Agrippa, her father, the mighty Augustus, her grandfather, the amiable Drusus, her father-in-law, herself celebrated for a fruitful bed and of signal chastity. Add the consideration of her little son, born in the camp, nursed in the arms of the legions, and by themselves named Caligula, a military name from the boots which, of the same fashion with their own, in compliment to them, and to win their affections, he frequently wore but nothing so effectually subdued them as their own envy towards the inhabitants of Treve. Hence they all besought, all adjured, that she would return to themselves, and with themselves remain. Thus some stopped Agrippina, but the main body returned with their entreaties to Germanicus, who, as he was yet in the transports of grief and anger, addressed himself on this wise to the surrounding crowd. To me— neither is my wife or son dearer than my father and the commonwealth. But him, doubtless, his proper majesty will defend, and the other armies will defend the Roman state. 
as to my wife and children, whom, for your glory, I could freely sacrifice, I now remove them from your rage, that by my blood alone may be expiated whatever further mischief your fury meditates, and that the murder of the great-grandson of Augustus, the murder of the daughter-in-law of Tiberius, may not be added to mine, nor to the blackness of your past guilt. For, during these days of frenzy, what has been too horrid for you to commit? What so sacred that you have not violated? To this audience what name shall I give? Can I call you soldiers, you who have beset with arms the son of your emperor, confined him in your trenches, and held him in a siege? Roman citizens can I call you, you who have trampled upon the supreme authority of the Roman Senate. Laws religiously observed by common enemies you have profaned, violated the sacred privileges and persons of ambassadors, broken the laws of nations. The deified Julius Caesar quelled a sedition in his army by a single word, by calling all who refused to follow him townsmen. The deified Augustus, when after the Battle of Actium the legions lapsed into mutiny, terrified them into submission by the dignity of his presence and an awful look. These, it is true, are mighty characters whom I dare not emulate, but, as I inherit their blood, should the armies in Syria and Spain contemn my authority, I should think their behaviour strange and base. Yet you are the first and the twentieth legions the former enrolled by Tiberius himself, the other his constant companions in so many battles, his partners in so many victories, and by him enriched with so many bounties. Is this the worthy return you make your emperor and late commander? And shall I be the author of such tidings to him, in the midst of congratulations and happy accounts from every province in the empire, that his own new levies, as well as his own veterans, who long fought under him, these, not appeased by their discharge, and neither of them satiated with the money given them, are both still combined in a furious mutiny, that here, and only here, the centurions are butchered, the tribunes driven away, the ambassadors imprisoned, that with blood the camp is stained, that the rivers flow with blood, and that for me, his son, I hold a precarious life amongst men thus raging and implacable. Why did you the other day, O oh unreasonable friend, snatch away my sword, when I would have plunged it into my breast? He who offered me his own sword acted better, and was more my friend. I would then have fallen happy, as my death would have hid from mine eyes so many horrible crimes since committed by my own army. You too would have chosen another general, who, though he would have left my death unpunished, yet would have sought vengeance for that of Varus and the three legions. For the gods are too just to permit that the Belgians, however generously they offer their service, shall reap the credit and renown of retrieving the glory of the Roman name, and of reducing, in behalf of Rome, the German nations her foes. I therefore here invoke thy spirit now with the gods, O deified Augustus, and thy image interwoven in the ensigns and thy memory, O deceased father, to vindicate these legions from this foul infamy. They already feel the remorses of shame and a sense of honour. Let them turn the tide of their civil rage to the destruction of their common enemy. And for you, my fellow-soldiers, in whom I now behold other countenances, 
and minds happily changed. If you mean to restore to the Senate its ambassadors, to your emperor your sworn obedience, to me, my wife and son, fly the company of incendiaries, separate the sober from the seditious. This will be a faithful sign of remorse, this a firm pledge of fidelity. These words softened them into supplicants. They confessed that all his reproaches were true. They besought him to punish the guilty and malicious, to pardon the weak and misled, and to lead them against the enemy, to recall his wife, to bring back his son, not to suffer the fosterling of the legions to be given in hostage to the Gauls. Against the recalling of Agrippina he alleged the advance of winter and her approaching delivery, but said that his son should return, and that to themselves he left to execute what remained further to be executed. Instantly, with changed resentment, they ran, and seizing the most seditious, dragged them in bonds to Gaius Catronius, commander of the First Legion, who judged and punished them in this manner. The legions, with their swords drawn, surrounded the tribunal. From thence the prisoner was by a tribune exposed to their view, and if they proclaimed him guilty, cast headlong down, and executed e'en by his fellow-soldiers, who rejoiced in the execution, because by it they thought their own guilt to be expiated. Nor did Germanicus restrain them, since on themselves remained the cruelty and reproach of the slaughter committed, without any order of his. The veterans followed the same example of vengeance, and were soon after ordered into Rhaetia, in appearance to defend that province against the invading Suavians, in, in reality to remove them from a camp still horrible to their sight, as well as in the remedy and punishment as from the memory of their crime. Germanicus next passed a scrutiny upon the conduct and characters of the centurions. Before him they were cited singly and each gave account of his name, his company, country, the length of his service, exploits in war, and military presence, if he had been distinguished with any. If the tribunes or his legion bore testimony of his diligence and integrity, he kept his post. Upon concurring complaint of his avarice or cruelty, he was degraded. Thus were the present commotions appeased. But others, as great still, subsisted from the rage and obstinacy of the fifth and twenty-first legions. They were in winter quarters, sixty miles off, in a place called the Old Camp, and had first begun the sedition. Nor was there any wickedness so horrid that they had not perpetrated, nay, at this time, neither terrified by the punishment nor reclaimed by the reformation of their fellow-soldiers, they persevered in their fury. Germanicus, therefore, determined to give them battle, if they persisted in their revolt, and prepared vessels, arms, and troops to be sent down the Rhine. Before the issue of the sedition in Illyricum was known at Rome, tidings of the uproar in the German legions arrived. Hence the city was filled with much terror, and hence against Tiberius many complaints that, while with feigned consultations and delays he mocked the senate and people, once the great bodies of the estate, but now bereft of power and armies, the soldiery were in open rebellion, one too mighty and stubborn to be quelled by two princes so young in years and authority. He ought at first to have gone himself, and awed them with the majesty of imperial power, as doubtless they would have returned to duty upon the sight of their emperor, 
a prince of consummate experience, the sovereign disposer of rewards and severity. Did Augustus, even under the pressures of old age and infirmities, take so many journeys into Germany? And should Tiberius, in the vigour of his life, when the same or greater occasions called him thither, sit lazily in the Senate to watch senators and cavil at words? He had fully provided for the domestic servitude of Rome. He ought next to cure the licentiousness of the soldiers, to restrain their turbulent spirits, and reconcile them to a life of peace. But all these reasonings and reproaches moved not Tiberius. He was determined not to depart from the capital, the centre of power and affairs, nor expose to chance or peril his person and empire. In truth, many and contrary difficulties pressed and perplexed him. The German army was the stronger, that of Pannonia nearer. The power of both the Gauls supported the former, the latter was at the gates of Italy. Now, to which should he repair first? And would not the last visited be enraged by being postponed? But, by sending one of his sons to each, the equal treatment of both was maintained, as also the majesty of the supreme power, which from distance ever derived more reverence. Besides, the young princes would be excused if to their father they referred such demands as were improper for them to grant, and if they disobeyed Germanicus and Drusus, his own authority remained to appease or punish them. But, if once they had contemned the emperor himself, what other resource was behind? However, as if he had been upon the point of marching, he chose his attendants, provided his equipage, and prepared a fleet, but by various delays and pretenses, sometimes that of winter, sometimes business, he deceived for a time even the wisest of men, much longer the common people, and the provinces for a great while. Germanicus had already drawn together his army and was prepared to take vengeance on the seditious, but judging it proper to allow space for trial, whether they would follow the late example, and, consulting their own safety, do justice upon one another, he sent letters to Caecina that he himself approached, with a powerful force, and, if they prevented him not, by executing the guilty, he would put all indifferently to the slaughter. These letters Caecina privately read to the principal officers, and such of the camp as the sedition had not tainted, besought them to redeem themselves from death, and all from infamy, urged that in peace alone reason was heard and merit distinguished, but in the rage of war the blind steel spared the innocent no more than the guilty. The officers, having tried those whom they believed for their purpose, and found the majority still to persevere in their duty, settled in concurrence with the general the time for falling with the sword upon the most notoriously guilty and turbulent. Upon a particular signal given, they rushed into their tents and butchered them, void as they were of all apprehension, nor did any but the centurions and executioners know whence the massacre began, or where it would end. This had a different face from all the civil slaughters that had ever happened. It was a slaughter not of enemies upon enemies, nor from different and opposite camps, nor in a day of battle, but of comrades upon comrades, in the same tents, where they ate together by day, where they slept together by night. From this state of intimacy they fly into mortal enmity. Friends launched their darts at friends, wounds, outcries, and blood were open to view but the cause remained hid. 
wild chance governed the rest, and several innocents were slain. For the criminals, when they found against whom all this fury was bent, had also betaken themselves to their arms. Neither did Caecina nor any of the tribunes intervene to stay the rage, so that the soldiers had full permission of vengeance, with a licentiousness and satiety of killing. Germanicus soon after entered the camp, now full of blood and carcasses, and lamenting with many tears that this was not a remedy but cruelty and desolation, commanded the bodies to be burnt. The minds of the rest, still tempestuous and bloody, were transported with sudden eagerness to attack the foe, as the best expiation of their tragical fury, nor otherwise, they thought, could the ghosts of their butchered brethren be appeased than by receiving in their own profane breasts a chastisement of honourable wounds. Germanicus fell in with the ardour of the soldiers, and, laying a bridge upon the Rhine, marched over twelve thousand legionary soldiers, twenty-six cohorts of the Allies, and eight regiments of horse, men all untainted in the late sedition. The Germans rejoiced, not far off, at this vacation of war, occasioned first by the death of Augustus, and afterwards by intestine tumults in the camp. But the Romans, by a hasty march, passed through the Caesian woods, and, levelling the barrier formerly begun by Tiberius, pitched their camp upon it. In the front and rear they were defended by a palisade, on each side by a barricade of the trunks of trees felled. From thence, beginning to traverse gloomy forests, they stopped to consult which of two ways they should choose, the short and frequented, or the longest and least known, and therefore unsuspected by the foe. The longest way was chosen, but in everything else dispatch was observed, for by the scouts intelligence was brought that the Germans did that night celebrate a festival, with great mirth and revelling. Hence Caecina was commanded to advance with the cohorts, without their baggage, and to clear a passage through the forest. At a moderate distance followed the legions. The clearness of the night facilitated the march, and they arrived at the villages of the Marsians, which they presently invested with guards. The Germans were even yet under the effects of their debauch, scattered here and there, some in bed, some lying by their tables no watch placed, no apprehension of an enemy. So utterly had their false security banished all order and care, and they were under no dread of war, without enjoying peace other than the deceitful and lethargic peace of drunkards. The legions were eager for revenge, and Germanicus, to extend their ravage, divided them into four battalions. The country was wasted by fire and sword fifty miles round, nor sex nor age found mercy. Places sacred and profane had the equal lot of destruction, all raised to the ground, and with them the temple of Tanfana, of all others the most celebrated amongst these nations. Nor did all this execution cost the soldiers a wound, while they only slew men half asleep, disarmed, or dispersed. This slaughter roused the Bructurens, the Tubantes, and the Usipites, and they beset the passes of the forest through which the enemy was to return, an event known to Germanicus, and he marched in order of battle. The auxiliary cohorts and part of the horse led the van, followed close by the first legion. The baggage was in the middle, the twenty-first legion closed the left wing, and the fifth the right, the twentieth defended the rear, and after them marched the rest of the allies. 
but the enemy stirred not till the body of the army was entered into the wood. They began lightly to insult the front and wings, and at last with their whole force fell upon the rear. The light cohorts were already disordered by the close German bands, when Germanicus, riding up to the twentieth legion, and exalting his voice, this was the season, he cried, to obliterate the scandal of sedition. Hence they should fall resolutely on, and convert into sudden praise their late shame and offence. These words inflamed them. At one charge they broke the enemy, drove them out of the wood, and slaughtered them in the plain. In the meanwhile the front passed the forest and fortified the camp. The rest of the march was uninterrupted, and the soldiers, trusting to the merit of their late exploits, and forgetting at once past faults and terrors, were placed in winter quarters. The tidings of these exploits affected Tiberius with gladness and anguish. He rejoiced that the sedition was suppressed, but that Germanicus had, by discharging the veterans, by shortening the term of service to the rest, and by largesses to all, gained the heart of the army, as well as earned high glory in war, proved to the emperor matter of torture. To the senate, however, he reported the detail of his feats, and upon his valour bestowed copious praises, but in words too pompous and ornamental to be thought dictated by his heart. It was with more brevity that he commended Drusus, and his address in quelling the sedition of Illyricum, but more cordially withal, and in language altogether sincere. And even to the Pannonian legions he extended all the concessions made by Germanicus to his own. End of section 17